Well, I realize that I've created some difficulties for some people and upset some categories, and I want to continue to do that, if I may. I want to talk to you a little bit more about this whole issue of decision-making, and I have just a couple more weeks' worth of things to say to you. So hopefully by the time of the end of this thing, we'll all know how better to make decisions, wise decisions, godly decisions. Amen? So if you follow along with me in the notes, I said to you last time that God does not want to make all of our decisions for us. That may come as a shock to some. God does not want to make all of your decisions for you. I suggested to you that, given that, as we're talking about the subject of grace, God's grace, I suggested that grace means responsibility. Grace means responsibility. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you shall be what? Free indeed. He sets us free. Implicit in that being set free to freedom uh, is what? Responsibility. He's setting us free to be responsible now. We were slaves to sin. We were locked up in the kingdom of darkness. God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his son. We are free. We're free. Somebody say, I said, I'm free. Tell your neighbor you're free. Tell them they're free. No longer, no longer slaves to sin. No longer slaves to sin. That is momentous. We've been set free. Now, ask your neighbor, what have you been set free for? Ah, see, now that's the question. Have I been set free to just do whatever I want? License? I have license to do whatever I want? No. Let me call your attention to Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. It will be on the screen for you. Paul says, you, my brothers, were called to be free. He says, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, what should we be doing? Serve one another. I'm set free so that I can now serve. The, the implication is, while I was still a slave of sin, I couldn't serve. I wouldn't serve. I didn't have the desire, the inclination, the ability, the power, the freedom to do it. Now I can. The same thing is said in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter agrees with Paul. Peter says, live as free men. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants for God. So we are to, we're, to, we're set free so we can serve God, and we're set free so we can serve one another. Doesn't that sound kind of like love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, your neighbor as yourself? See a correlation, correlation between those? And that really is the highest calling, isn't it? When you begin to understand your dignity as a human being, made in the image of God, and God sets you free, he's in the process of restoring the wonderful image that was distorted by sin, Part of that dignity is the fact that we get to serve the living God. We get to do His will. And part of that will is by serving and helping and blessing one another. You could not ask for a greater thing to do in life. To be a servant. 
That sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? But when you think about it, and you think about what really does bless your life personally, it's when you do reach out and you do minister and you do serve other people. There's, a, there's a, a, an incredible, wonderful satisfaction in that. That's how God designed it. So grace means responsibility. I've been entrusted with a tremendous responsibility now. And responsibility means, among other things, learning to make wise decisions. Let me say that again. Responsibility means learning to make wise decisions. And so God does not want to be all the time telling us what to do. We're not robots. We're not a glove that, that he fills the glove. We're, we are unique beings He's given, an insula- he's given us intellect, personality, personhood, will. Uh, we are tremendously, wonderfully made. And God has a great plan for each one of us. So he wants to make us into the kind of people, not that he tells us all the time what to do, he wants to make us into the kind of people he can trust. He wants to make us into the kind of people who so deeply understand and love his will that he can set us free to do it. Isn't that a great thought? That we understand his will, we love his will so much that he can trust us, he can set us free to do his will. You say, what about God's will? What about God's purpose? Is it good? Yes. Is it desirable? Is it the best thing? Yeah, listen to what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. Nearly everybody knows this verse. The context is God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to the captives in Babylon. who've been All of the people from Judah have been taken captive up to Babylon. They've been up there for 70 years. God is promising that he's going to restore them. He's going to bring them back into the land. They're going to possess the land again. In the midst of their despair, in the midst of their hopelessness, Jeremiah gives them some hope. And God says, I know my plans for you. I know what I'm doing. And he characterizes his plans as plans to prosper his people, not to harm them, plans to give them a hope and a future. You say, well, that's well and good, but he was speaking to the captives in Babylon. How does that apply to me? Because the same principle holds true for us. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His promises to Israel are the same to us. We are his people. And so you extract the principle out there. God's plans are to prosper our life, to bless us, not to harm us. We can take comfort in that. Lord, I'm not afraid of your will. Your will is, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, your will is what? Good, pleasing, and perfect. So his will is the best. He has our best interests at heart. He knows he made each one of us. He knows where we fit. He wants our best. His will, his purpose for our life. Now when you're looking for God's will and purpose, when you're trying to discover God's will and purpose for your life, you find that they're contextualized always in three things. These three constants 
are always going to uh, describe God's will in, with respect to your life. Three simple things. These aren't new. The first is, obviously, your relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot possibly be in God's will unless you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus says himself in John chapter 6, verse 40, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, meaning himself, and believes in him shall have eternal life. And when does that eternal life begin? The moment you believe. The moment you believe. So you're the, God's will for your life, his, his purpose for your life, is contextualized first in a relationship with Jesus. I want to know God's will for my life. Are you in a relationship with Jesus Christ? In Acts chapter 22, verse 14, Paul is rehearsing and recounting his own conversion experience. And he quotes the words that were spoken to him by Ananias. He says, God has chosen you to know his will and see the righteous one and hear the words from his mouth. Obviously, how am I going to know his will except that I'm in a relationship with Christ and that I know his will. I hear his words. The second dynamic that is necessary for knowing and understanding, contextualizing God's will, for you finding it, is the necessity for holy living. So first of all, I want to be in a relationship with, with Jesus. And secondly, it's important that I know that that includes holy living. Ephesians 1.4 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So, God's will is always going to include a relationship with Christ. It's always going to include holy living, an orientation in that direction. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, it is God's will that you should be holy. And thirdly, God's will will include the commission to serve. We already saw that in the Galatians and 1 Peter passage. The commission to serve. And we serve through the exercise of gifts, fundamentally, primarily. Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says this, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. Has God been merciful? Oh, absolutely. I mean, every day our prayers ought to be, God, thank you, thank you that you are merciful. Thank you for your mercy towards me. Thank you for your mercy towards me. Thank you that you have not given me what I deserve. Rather, you've given me what I don't deserve. Thank you that you've been merciful towards me. So he says, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to what? What does he urge us to do? Offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. Offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. Sacrifice, that's the word. Implicit in that word is what? Service. As opposed to dead sacrifices. Paul was remembering all the dead sacrifices of the Jewish system. He says, not a dead sacrifice, a living sacrifice. You know, they put those dead animals on the altar, burn them up, 
He had that picture in his mind. Somebody said the problem with a living sacrifice, as soon as you get on the altar, it wants to wiggle off. You get committed, oh, yes, Lord, I'm fired up, I'm committed, I want to serve you. You know, that's Sunday morning, then Monday morning, you go, well, maybe. (laughs) I'm going to read my word every day, I'm going to read the Bible, yes, Lord. Monday morning comes, "Mm." (laughs) wiggle off that altar. Living sacrifice, if you keep in view God's mercy to you, chances are that you will, in fact, offer your body as a living sacrifice, everything you are. So as we think about those things, and as you read the Bible, never, never, beloved, are there any instructions for finding God's direction. Now you would think that odd. You would think that in this book, certainly there are instructions for finding God's direction, for making the right decision. How many people have found themselves saying, I want to make the right decision. I want to marry the right person. I want to get the right job. I want to live in the right neighborhood. Right? I want to have the right kids. (laughs) I want to go to the right school. Right? We find ourselves saying those things and pursuing those things, and and we say, it, it just it makes sense to us. It seems logical that we should do the right thing. And so we think that God will lead us into the right thing. And nowhere in the Bible do we find explicit directions for finding the right thing in that sense. So we want that. We, we want to find God's direction. We want to pattern our lives, and many of us have found ourselves patterning our lives, as we said last week, after the direction method God, direct me. Direct me, and I'm waiting to hear a voice. I'm waiting to be inspired. And so if you choose the direction method, and many of us have, and some of us still are, in spite of what you're hearing, and it may be a struggle for you, I understand that. If you choose to pattern your life after that direction method, you have no clear instructions to guide you. Let me say that again. You have no clear instructions to guide you. But if you use the other method, what's the other method? The wisdom method. This is marvelous. You have the whole Bible to light your path. You have the whole Bible. You have the manufacturer's handbook to tell you what and how to do. Psalm 1 Marvelous psalm, first three verses, familiar to many of us. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in what? The law of the Lord, the word of God. He delights in the word of God. He says, and in the law of the Lord, or on his law, in his word, he meditates 15 minutes every morning. No? What did you say? Meditates what? Day and night. You say, well, I have to go to work. I have to go to school. I have to do this. I have to do that. Understanding. But the point is, is that this is, the, this is the most important thing in a person's life. God's Word. 
as a result of meditating in God's word, look at what he says in verse 3. Look at this person's life. That person will be like a tree planted, literally firmly, deeply planted, immovable, planted by streams of water, constantly nourished. And it yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. Whatever he does, he prospers. Now, I'm going to suggest to you, that is a description of following the wisdom method and not the direction method. That's a result of somebody who is seeking God's wisdom through his word. The scriptures, the Bible, is full of truth. It's full of principles. It is full of teachings to enable us, very simply, to become wiser and wiser and wiser about God's purposes and about God's ways so that we can learn to make the kind of decisions that actually please him. Who wants to make decisions that please God? Yeah. Well, how are you going to know how to make those decisions? Are you just going to kind of sit on a rock and wait to be inspired? Or are you going to get, sit on the rock and read this book and say, Lord, teach me, instruct me. And so many people are just waiting to be inspired. They're, they're looking for direction. They're waiting to hear a voice. Remember, there are many competing voices. The key, if I can say it this way, the key to the problem of making God-honoring decisions. What kind of decisions? The key can be found in the principle of stewardship. Turn to Matthew's Gospel, if you will, chapter 25. Again, a familiar passage to most all of us. Matthew chapter 25, this is the parable of the talents. Here's the key. We find the key to the problem of making God-honoring decisions. It's found in this principle of stewardship. Again, he says, verse 14, Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. You might want to underline those words. God didn't give you any more to be required of you than he knows that you can deal with and handle. Each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. There's always going to be a settling of accounts, isn't there? Yes. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and successful servant. What's the murmuring for? Huh? Faithful servant. Faithful. Just faithful. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. 
Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid. I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew. So you knew that I... I harvest where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered. So this is what you think of me. This is what you believe about me, huh? Hmm. Okay. Well, then, you should have at least put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I'd have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. That's ominous. That is ominous. Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The master gives out a sum of money to his three servants. Each one receives a different sum of money. He does so with the expectation that each one would make the most of what he had received. God gives abilities, talents, gifts, opportunities with the expectation that we will make the most of what we have received. Now, as you read the account, they weren't evidently given any particular detailed instructions about what to do with the money, how to invest it. No advice about how to proceed. He said, now you go invest it over here, you invest it over here. No, it was up to the servants to decide whether they were going to work with cattle or sheep, grapes, wheat, or some other business venture. And they all took responsibility and did the best they could and were rewarded for their diligence and for their faithfulness, right? All but one. All but one. The one did not dare to make a mistake did not dare to make a mistake for fear of what the master would say if he decided wrong. And beloved, this is a problem for many. They're afraid and or lazy. Afraid to take a chance and or they're flat lazy. So that one took the talent the one talent he was entrusted with, and he hid it, and when his master returned, he returned it unused. Write that down. He returned the talent unused. Am I using what God has given me? And it was he and he alone that earned his master's anger. It's only he who earned his master's anger because he refused to take responsibility for using what the master would give him. He would not take the risk of choosing on his own. You say, well, well, can't we just understand? I mean, the guy, you know, he maybe he didn't, he may, no, 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 look at it. 
He was given according to his ability. God knew exactly he was expected to take what he used. He's not a helpless victim. He was expected by the master to put that to work. You and I, beloved, are expected by the master to take what he's given us and to do something with it. Does that make sense? We have responsibility. Grace means responsibility. Grace means responsibility. Ask yourself, which of these stewards am I most like? Am I like the steward who received the five talents and I'm making five more and, and, and glorifying God? Or am I like the steward who have two talents or am I like the steward with the one talent? Am I immobilized by fear? Have I gotten the habit of being afraid to step out and risk and make some decisions, God-honoring decisions? Do I not know which way to go? Am I waiting for someone to tell me what to do and how to do it? Beloved, God has given us gifts to use for him, and it's up to us to use them. It's just simply up to us to use them. We can't wait for a telegram from headquarters. We can't wait for a voice from heaven. We must start moving. We must start moving for him, serving him, using our gifts for him, giving our lives for him in the best and fullest way we know how. You've heard the saying, if, if there's something worth doing, it's doing what? Doing well, right? I want to suggest to you that, that if you're just getting started, rephrase it. If there's something worth doing, it's worth doing at least in the beginning badly. Because <laughs> everybody getting started does it badly. But you're afraid of doing it badly, so you won't do it. Right? Ron, when you first started witnessing the Palestinians, did you do it badly or goodly? Badly. But you, as you continue to do it, you did it better and better. By the way, Moran's back from Israel, so after the service you can love him up. And when he's a little bit more acclimated, we'll have him come and share a little bit, okay, about his, his experience. Welcome back. Always, certainly, at any time... God can step in, can't he? Always at any time, God can step in with other orders or he can turn us here or there by his providential guarding. He is God, he can do what he wants. But ordinarily, in the meantime, we must be doing our utmost to use what he's given us in his service, even if we start out badly. Because if you start out badly and you keep doing it, maybe you'll get better at it. God cannot as the saying goes, steer a ship that is dead in the water. You've got to be moving. You've got to be moving. So we see clearly that Scripture teaches us about this very issue, that decisions made must be made on the basis of wisdom. But not only, not only Scripture, experience teaches us that. Life teaches us that. It's a common principle. Decisions must be made on the basis of wisdom. For, for example, what happens to a child if his parents make all of his decisions for him? What happens to that child? He's damaged. He's stunted in his growth. He never learns how to step out. Warped, unable to choose, unable to act as a mature or maturing 
human being. That lady came up to me last night just terrified because she'd been making all of her decisions for her kids. How have I ruined them? I said, no, but just stop making the decisions for them. (laughs) Parents don't always make the right decisions or the best decisions or the wisest decisions, right? Parents are fallible. They frequently make wrong decisions for children. But even if every decision they made was right, wouldn't the child still suffer? Surely. And the fact that they were right makes it even worse for the child. At least if the parents were wrong some of the time, the child would have an excuse for asserting himself and making some of his own decisions. But if the parents were always right, that would certainly never happen. If I can put it another way, God is willing to let us make mistakes. I can make mistakes. God is willing to let us make mistakes. Is that not marvelous? And sometimes very tragic ones. I hope that's freeing to you. But the idea is even when we make mistakes, he wants us to begin to at least learn by them. Duh. Duh. I could have had a V8. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Beloved, God is not overly concerned. Please note this. God is not overly concerned that we should always be right or that our decision should be perfect. How many perfectionists do we have in the crowd this morning? Does that drive you crazy sometimes? God, if I can't do something right, I'm not going to do it at all. Do it badly. It's okay. God's not so much concerned we make the right decisions as much as he's concerned we make wise decisions. Wise. Who of us By the way, who of us ever could even bear the burden of always being right? You ever been around somebody who's always right? Always, they never right. Husbands are always right, right? The wife says, "No, it's my. I'm wrong again. Okay, it's my fault. I knew it." (laughs) I see some nodding agreement in the audience. People have made terrible mistakes, haven't they? Being convinced that what they heard God told them when in fact it was their own desire. And yet they're going to blame God. Well, God told me to do that. How about the person who is absolutely convinced, absolutely convinced they've heard from God? Or let me put it this way. I've prayed for six months on this. And I know that God wants me to do this. Prayed for six months, a year, when in fact it is their own desire and they're just convincing themselves and giving God the credit for their foolishness. Very often that happens. I had a man come and tell me, 
some years ago in our church, he said, you know, there's this woman, you need to help me. There's this woman in the church who's telling everybody that God told her that I was going to be her husband. I said, you're on your own, buddy. I ain't getting in that one. And then another occasion, a woman, a young woman came and said, you know, I, she says, this man came and, and told me that, that he'd been praying and that uh, God said that I'm to be his wife. And I said, well, what do you think about that? She says, well, God hadn't told me. <laughs> I said, well, you go back and tell him, well, God hasn't told me. <laughs> Some of us can be very timid. Some of us can be very timid when we find ourselves saddled with uh, an unsatisfying job or, or a vocation simply because we feel like it's God's will for us. And then the reality is, is we've just simply made a mistake. We just simply made a mistake. But we can't learn from that mistake because we feel like we're doing what God told us to do, and so now we're stuck. And someone asked me, well, does that, does that work for marriage, too? No, it doesn't work for marriage. You are stuck. And you may as well start thanking God and rejoicing in that, even if you made a mistake. It's for life. And then there's the passive, self-doubting Christian who never learns to take risks or strike out on his or her own. That person has to wait till they hear the voice of God before they can make any important move. The reality is they never really hear that voice. And so they're dead in the water. They're stuck. They, they never do anything. What a tragedy. Or if they do hear the voice... He no sooner begins to act than he begins to fear that maybe his decision is wrong. Begins to vacillate, begins to wonder, was that me or was that God? You see, when you're you're locked into this direction method, you're always wondering, is that you or is that God? Now, you can convince yourself, but I know God's voice. As I said, there's lots of competing voices out there, and the devil disguises himself as an angel of light. So that person will vacillate back and forth, never really able to make up his or her mind, stuck. So in view of all these things, it seems to make a great deal of sense, I think, to say that God usually doesn't explicitly tell us what to do. Instead, ordinarily, he leaves the decisions up to us. How mundane. How mundane. We want God to be spectacular. Make every decision for me. I want lights and bells and whistles to go off when I have to make a decision. I want to get the holy (laughs) heebie-jeebies. You see, when we take this God-given responsibility, we begin to act on this God-given responsibility, that's when we begin to grow. That's when we begin to grow, and that's when we begin to grow in wisdom. In fact, uh, we grow not only in wisdom, but we also grow in our own heart commitment. Think about this for a second. 
If we wait for God to tell us what to do in every particular situation, we very easily slip into a passive Christianity. We're passive in our faith. We content ourselves, really, with the idea that we're doing what God told us to do, and therefore we're pleasing to God, and we're just being passive. But God wants more than a passive obedience. God wants active, choosing, outgoing love and service. He wants people stepping out, and he wants you stepping out in faith because of what you already know. Those three parameters that we talked about earlier. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's called me to holy living, and he's called me to service. Within the confines of those three parameters, I know a lot about God's will, and I can determine the choices I make. Outgoing. Stepping out. Not waiting to be invited. See a need? Go fill it. Go minister. Go serve. Go help somebody. Go be a blessing. Don't say, well, I haven't heard from God yet. I want to gag when I hear that. I absolutely want to gag when I hear that. You have heard from God. Open your book and read it. Our commitment, by the way, is not measured, this is important, our commitment is not measured by whether or not we are prepared to say yes to some explicit commands that God may make on us. It's not, no. Our commitment is to be measured by our willingness, notice this, to throw our whole being living sacrifices, throw our whole being into holy living and giving ourselves in service for others. That's how our commitment is measured. Am I really willing to go for it? Am I willing to make and go on making the kind of decisions that in fact reflect a total abandonment to God's will? Am I abandoned to this? Let me read to you again from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. Jesus' words, very simply stated. Verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. <clears throat> deny himself. Say no. No to what I want, and yes to what God wants. But it's not just saying no, it's actually taking up the cross, and the cross, remember, was an instrument of death, so I must die to myself. Now, a lot of us don't want to do that. So we don't follow him. We don't step it up. We just say, well, you know, I haven't heard from God yet. <laughs> well, you have this morning, haven't you? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. It's a given. You can take that to the bank. Whoever loses his life for me, you'll find it. You want to live? You want to live? Live for Jesus. Follow him. 
What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with all of his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Mm. Beloved, our decisions must not be merely those that God dishes out, though he may speak to us, and if he does, we must obey. They must be an expression. Our decisions must be an expression of a mind that knows and understands something of God's purposes and of a heart in love with those purposes. Simply stated. Sold out. Sold out to the love of Jesus Christ for doing and ministering and being a servant ready to do all that he calls on us to do, ministering his grace and his love, his mercy, that he gives to us, we pass it on. Freely ever receive, freely give. Amen? Kind of easy, kind of simple. Would you agree? Wisdom. So no longer do you say, oh, I want to make the right decision. No, I want to make a wise decision. I want to make a wise decision. I want to school my mind in the word of God so I know his truth and know his principles so I can make wise God-honoring decisions. And then if you make a mistake, Romans 8.28 covers it, doesn't it? <laughs> the great safety net of the Bible. Hallelujah. Next time we're going to talk about some principles that should in fact govern our decision-making. We're going to get a little bit more specific next time. So let's pray. Lord, again, we're thankful for your grace to us. And thank you, Father, for Jesus who sets us free from the grip of sin and from fear. And thank you for the confidence that we have not received a spirit of fear again, but a spirit that says, cries out, Abba, Father. We love you this morning. We love your word. We love your church. We love your will. We love your purposes. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Amen.